I invested everything I had. Unfortunately, at the same time, I couldn't afford the apartment and the business. So I didn't tell anybody. I literally slept in the back of the club while I was building it. Failure wasn't an option. And I know people say that all the time. It's cliche, but it wasn't an option. Like I was on a cardboard box. I mean, any lower is just being dead in a hole. So it's got to work. Nightlife pioneer Tommy Greco has seen it all. Now celebrating 17 years in business, he's nurtured New York City's iconic gay bar, The Ritz. From its early days of lines down the street to surviving a year like no other, Tommy shares the hustle, resilience, and vision it takes to create something legendary and keep it going in the wildest of times. From sleeping on boxes in the back of the bar, dealing with constant uncertainty, to never accepting failure, Tommy's stories deliver a rare glimpse of unscripted nights only a true nightlife OG could provide. I'm Bob Wheeler, and this is Money You Should Ask. This podcast, our books, online courses, and newsletter all focus on awakening your money mindset. Our mission is to normalize conversations around personal finance so we can better understand why we do what we do when it comes to money. Ensure you never miss an episode. Click that follow button on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, break open the champagne as we celebrate 17 years of The Ritz, New York, with our guest, Tommy Greco. Tommy, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I got to congratulate you. You've got a 17-year anniversary of The Ritz coming up. I sure do. Like big birthday parties. That's pretty awesome. You've been running this bar for 17 years in New York City. Can you give us a typical day in your shoes overseeing the craziness that is your life? Over the years, now 17 years into it, the machine is built and things get a little bit more routine. In the beginning, the first quarter, everybody says, what's your normal day? I said, I just wake up and I'm like... I go down, I receive whatever is thrown at me. Besides the daily tests, I don't know who's going to walk in the door. I don't know what frame of mind all these employees are going to come in. And it could be a smooth day. It can be in my office screaming at drag queens and go-go boys. It could be outside dealing with homeless. Who knows? And were there any of those days where you thought, nobody's coming to the club tonight? This is the last day. Or even if they do come, I can't pay the bartenders. Like, it's the end. Did you ever have those moments? Fortunately, I never had a moment in regards to money. Now, I did have one part where the city came down on me really hard with a multi-agency task force, which they call a march for a raid after you get so many complaints and they literally padlocked the place for five days. Wow. Now that's when I was like, okay, how do I get this done? And in those five days with attorneys, court, everything, I persevered. I got the place back open, but I tell you, boy, I I never want to have that feeling again. But besides that type of intervention, I never had an issue where I didn't think I could pay the bills, but I definitely did have times where I didn't think anybody was coming. Superstorm Sandy, when half New York City didn't have power and I had power. The other blackout that had happened where it was not really known, but Midtown Manhattan had lost power for like a day. 
Wow. And we never shut down. The Ritz never shuts down. Seven days a week from four in the afternoon till four in the morning. Never shuts down. Even during the storm, everything. I had people coming up from the Lower East Side. I had extension cords charging everybody's phone. I live upstairs with my family. I had people coming in, showering. I must have made a hundred pounds of pasta in my kitchen for people just coming to eat. But as they say, the show goes on, you know? The show goes on. I can't even imagine now, is your favorite part of the job staying up till four in the morning? Because I'm a morning person. I'm up at 5.30. Four o'clock is a little late for me. I don't know that I could do a nightclub every night. So in New York, it's not four in the morning. In New York, you got to close, get everybody out, count the money. It's like I'm home at 5.30. And that's just up two flights of stairs. So over the years, I don't do that anymore. My manager closes it and locks the door. I mean, I'm going to be 48 this year. I opened up Ritz when I was 29. I celebrated my 30th birthday there. So it's just like, I can't do that late stuff anymore. I'm a morning person now. (laughs) Uh, Kids will do that to you. But it's a lifestyle. It surely was a lifestyle for a good decade, 10 years, seven days a week. I mean, they used to yell at me. They just go on vacation. So I literally go down to my office in the middle of a Saturday night, book a plane ticket for out of JFK at six in the morning lock the club, get in a cab with a cocktail and go down to Miami for three days to sleep. (laughs) For some, that's a vacation. That is definitely a vacation for some. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were in finance, you majored in finance, economics, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You were in that. And then one day you're like, I think I'll just run a gay bar and (laughs) get some Maybe I'll find a wife, but I'll have some go-go boys and a couple drag queens and we'll call it a party. Yeah. (laughs) I wish it was like that easy. So how it happened was when I was in college, I was a bartender. I bartended my way through college. It's how I paid for school. And everybody always asked me, what's your profession? I said, at heart, I'm a bartender. Forget the degrees, the finance, the trading, owning. I'm a bartender. And one of the best nights to work up in Connecticut in New England was Sunday night, which was the gay night to go out. And they were used to fight for those shifts. So I got that shift and I held it for three years. I was there. So I met everybody in the scene in New England. But at the time, I was still promoting parties for the college kids while I was in school. And then I worked with some nightlife personalities in the late 90s where I would bring the Hartford college crowd to these night before Thanksgiving, New Year's Eve parties. I ran the list. So people like Noah Teppenberg and Jason Strauss, when they used to do New Year's Eve parties at Mirage or Friday nights at Envy and Saturdays at Eugene's and then Tuesday, baby, Tuesday, club life. I used to run a sub list. So now here I had a lot of friends in the LGBT community. And then I had a lot of friends in, let's just say, the very straight social community in New York. When I moved to Manhattan in 97, 98, I kept getting bar gigs because in the apprenticeship program, they pay you nothing and you have to afford to live in New York. So I kept the bar gigs A to make money and B that I can be out and not spend money on booze, just drink behind the bar, not mine. So between that, I had a lot of friends in both, let's just say community. It was a little bit more divided back then and much more divided in the 90s. So if I was out with more of my gay friends, we go to where they want to go. If I was with this crew, I went I went out to go with my friends and to hang with the people I was friendly with. I didn't go because it was this particular type of event or whatever. It was very fluid, let's say. 
And then when the internet bubble burst in March of 2000, I saw kind of the writing on the wall. I started to get less involved in my career. And my brother had a restaurant in the West Village called Philip Marie. And I used to go there and I'd bartend. My brother said, hey, I have this bar. I'm starting up on 51st Street in Hell's Kitchen. I'm going to make it a gay bar. It's called Posh. Why don't you help me do it a little bit? And I said, all right. I was helping him. And then I fully got out of trading. And he said, why don't you go up there and bartend and run the place? He was a chef. So he was going to focus on his restaurant and I'll run the bar. And what I did was I just identified people in and out in the scene that were popular. And I mean, this is before social media. Right. This is before all of that stuff. Promoting used to be handing out flyers (laughs) and doing stuff like that. Yep. So I identified a lot of people that I hung out with that were super popular. And I'm one of them. One of my closest friends who had recently passed away, his name was Javier, Xavier Azua. And then when I met him, he was a cocktail waiter at Barracuda. It's funny, like the song, when you were a cocktail waitress when, yeah. Right, song. right. So we became really good friends. And I said, listen, what are you cocktailing here for? Come bartend with me. He was so popular. So he said, okay, he made the jump. So him and I would be behind the bar. Then I brought in Caswell. Caswell's like a rapper slash artist. I brought him up from the East Village to start bartending. Very eclectic, but very popular. So our claim to fame with Javier and I, we started a night on Monday night in the theater area, because that's where we were in Hell's Kitchen, because all the shows are dark on Monday, called $2 Margaritas. It was so cheap that you couldn't not go. You you had to. You had to. (laughs) So we got so busy. We had this one DJ. And she would show up, not show up. And Javier's like, listen, I got tons of CDs. I can DJ this. And I was like, all right, just get behind there and figure it out. And I'll bartend. So with his popularity, his music, the drink special, the location, the Broadway kids, all of a sudden, it all came together beautiful. And that's how his DJing career, DJ Javier, launched. And after running Posh for about let's say four and a half, five years. Unfortunately, my brother and I didn't see eye to eye because the deal was you stay there, I stay there. And the minute we started coming near each other, we had friction. So I had left. And in my true style, I said, okay, well, I'm leaving and I'm going to open up down the street, put you out of business. (laughs) So it was at 51st. I opened up on 46th and 9th on Restaurant Row. Everybody said, I'm crazy. It's a tourist trap. And then I went down there and I brought everyone that I had been out with and hired and worked with over the past half decade and just moved them down there. And when we built the place, just like anybody has a business that works somewhere else, you make improvements on what you wish you had at the other place. Yeah. And that's basically how the Ritz was born. As I'm listening, I'm wondering... What were the influences of your parents, maybe in terms of money? Because you said money really was never an issue. Did you worry about all that? You just knew how to do budgets. You knew how to, how did all that play into it? Was there ever like in the back of mind, I'm putting all this money in, it's going to be gone or? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, money's always an issue. My mom was an x-ray tech, raised with a single mother. We were not very well to do. Like I said, I bartended my way through college. I stressed about money, but I never worried about it because I'm a hustler. I'm a worker. 
just like any hardworking waiter, bartender, promoter, as long as I can get out there, I can make the money. You know what I mean? Right. But with Ritz, so when I was at Posh, I have a mutual friend that introduced me to this gentleman, my friend, Jimmy, Jimmy Glenn. And Jimmy and I, they're just two people that just hit it off and connect like, where have you been my whole life? And Jimmy, who was like an attorney, not really practicing at the time, an art collector, dealer, and stuff like that. He was coming to Posh. He's gay. And he always said, hey, if you ever want to do something, let me know. So when everything went down, I called him. I said, hey, man, you said this. And 99.99% of the people are filled with you know what. Right. So exactly. I called him and I said, hey, listen, I found the place. I left there. It's on a restaurant row. I said, you want to be in the gay bar business? He goes, brother, I've been waiting five years for you to ask me this question. <laughs> he goes, let me grab my account and I'll be in New York in 24 hours. And he invested a lot. I invested everything I had while I was building it. Yeah. I obviously wasn't really dating at the time because right. we had to do, hey, want to come back to my, <laughs> my cardboard boxes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Check out the food. I've got lots of food. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't until we were just about to open and Jimmy came up and he's like, where's your apartment? Let's go to your apartment. I broke down. I told him, I said, dude, I've been living here for the past month and a half. He's like, you got to be out of your mind. And I was driving out to Jersey to my mom to watch clothes and shower. Right. And he's like, this is ridiculous, brother. Let's get an apartment. We'll get something today. We found something right across the street from the place. This is before we purchased the building. It was a two bedroom and he had a back bedroom. So when he came up on the weekends, he had it. I lived in the front and we did that for a few years. But I didn't stress. I stressed about budget and things going over budget and fixtures. But the thing, failure wasn't an option. And I know people say that all the time. It's cliche, but it wasn't an option. Like I was on a cardboard box. I mean, any lower is just being dead in a hole. So it's got to work. And maybe that ties back to being saying you're a hustler, but making things happen. But when you really want something to happen, you got to be willing to go all out. You have to think outside the box. So I might not be sleeping in an apartment for a few weeks, or I may have to make some choices that in the short term aren't joyous, but in the long term are going to pay big dividends when you actually get your traction going. Yeah. I mean, that's the advice to this newer generation. Everybody thinks because of all the social media and Instagram and everything, oh, I can just do this. And in three weeks, I'm going to be making. It's not true. I mean, listen, do good things. Does lucky things happen? Absolutely. Sure. But we're numbers people and probability says that's not probable. (laughs) But when someone talks to me about starting a business, whether it be in the bar, restaurant, hospitality or anything, I tell them, if I don't know the specifics of that field, I said, with anything, You have to be so laser focused. You can't be half in, half out. Oh, during the week, I'll run it. But on the weekends, I'm out paddle boarding. No, you're in your life at times. I felt, listen, everyone's like, wow, you got this business. I said, yeah, but I'm alone. I'm dating anybody. I didn't have anything going on. It was seven days a week like this tunnel vision. Right. And until the wave then starts to carry you is when then you can adjust your schedule. But that sometimes takes two years, three years. It took a while. I mean, it exploded. Let me tell you, it exploded. Lines down the street, seven days a week. 
I mean, it exploded to the point where I had police knocking on my door on, <laughs> on a daily basis. They don't ticket and find people who aren't doing business. Just remember right. that. <laughs> people who fail don't get sued. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think it's so important that you talk about that tunnel vision. That's often the way when I want something done, I have to obsess and tunnel vision it and let nothing distract you. You got to stay the course, got to stay the course. And I think a lot of times people are like, look, there's a pretty car. There's a, <laughs> and they, they get off track. So yeah, yeah. got to stay the course. Tommy, we're going to take just a minute to test your nerve. We're going to shift the energy just real quick. Okay. Test your nerve is brought to you by themoneynerve.com. To the listeners out there, are financial fears keeping you up at night? Face your money monsters at testyournerve.com with our free money mindset quiz. Don't let the boogeyman win. Visit it today. All right, here we go. Can you dish out a celebrity encounter that left you starstruck behind the bar? Yes. There was one right away and an after effect. One right away was Madonna. She rented out the second floor of the Ritz for her trainer at the time, Tracy Anderson's birthday. And I was like, yeah, I've seen everybody. But there was something about her. She walked up the stairs and I met her in the foyer little area. And I've never seen that on anybody else before in my life. She had a glow mm. around her. And it was just the coolest thing. I've never had it. And I've met a million other people. But Madonna had a glow. Wow. The after effect one would be Lady Gaga. <laughs> she came to the bar before she was even popular. She came with one of my drag queens and DJs. We got drunk. We were partying. I think we might have made out or something. <laughs> and she left. I called my DJ. I was like, dude, was I making out with some drag queen last night? And they said, no, 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 whatever, whatever. I had no idea who she was. And then like, I don't know, a couple months later, Poker Face came out. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I should have hung around for that one, right? That's too bad. Not a drag queen. Definitely not a drag <laughs> Let's see. Can you tell us about a moment that you had you saying, yep, we're doing something truly unique here? Like, when was that moment you knew? So that moment that I knew we were doing something truly unique was probably, it was our first gay pride. We opened on September. So we went the course to the next year into June, and it was my first gay pride. And that Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, we had a line to get into the place from the minute we opened wow. till the minute we closed. I literally went down the line with drink tickets, apologizing to people that I couldn't let them in because we were closing. But I wanted them to know that I'm so grateful that you came to my place. So please come back and have free drinks. But that's when I was like, definitely got a tiger by the tail. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. What's the most extravagant tab someone ever ran up at the Ritz, making you check your heart rate when you saw the bill? Like, are they going to be able to pay this? McQueen, the designer's brother. <laughs> I forgot his first name, but I guess he liked one of my bartenders as a friend. You know what I mean? And it wasn't he rang up a big tab. He ran up a decent tab, but he left the bartender a few thousand dollars. <laughs> and I was like... Hey, man, he's like, it was a black card and, and it was the McQueen, the designer's brother. And I said, OK, I said, but I can't give you the money tonight. The charge has got to clear. <laughs> if it clears and we don't get a reneg, right. you're good. 
And yeah, I showed up and gave my bartender the cash. Yeah. Wow. That's a week later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's cool. What's one splurge that you always treat yourself to, even if your inner accountant is saying, don't do that? <laughs> I'd have to say travel and eating, and they're two in the same. So when I feel like I'm about to hit the wall or I'm really grinding, I get out of Dodge. I don't go to some place. I've seen more outside the U.S. than I've seen inside the U.S. And I don't mean go down to Miami or to the Caribbean or something. I'll go to Barcelona or I'll go to Berlin or I'll go to Copenhagen, somewhere I was never been to and just go to like, I was in Copenhagen, I went to Noma. And just to show myself, it did pay off. I have to trick myself because I'm not into, yeah, I don't have Ferraris and Porsches and I like to save because I fear and remember that day on cardboard boxes is sleeping. But every once in a while, I like to step into that realm to remind yourself the air smells pretty good here. <laughs> <laughs> it's something's working. Something's working. Yeah. <laughs> What's a money myth about running a thriving bar that you would love to debunk? There's no cash. There's no cash in it. Everybody thinks you got suitcases of cash. <laughs> and when I first opened, we had cash. But in the digital age, there's no cash. These theories of people owning bars with wads of cash always around and money, there's no cash. Everything is credit card. These kids today, and I say these because I still feel like I'm 21 inside, but right. the younger generations, they don't even have any idea what cash is. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> yeah, everything they pay with their watch, they pay with their phone, they pay with credit cards. And what's a shame is that type of culture now, there's other cultures that have died out. And the one culture that I still do all the time and you can see people light up, is the handshake. Yeah, Tipping the maitre d' at a restaurant with a handshake. Tipping the valet guy, not like, oh, here and here's for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. The handshake. Or tipping before I even go in, or tipping when he takes the car, because they don't know what it is and the mannerisms of cash. Yeah. I help run a club, and if everything stopped being cash, yeah, there's no cash. But on the other hand, there's no cash. And employees don't have much cash to put their fingers on to skip out of the bar. We saw an increase in our profits pretty dramatically when not everybody was touching, especially in a bar, the myth, or at least the couple of clients I had historically when it was cash, yeah. they factored in 15% or 20% sticky fingers. Yeah, They had a margin of error that they could live with. So the cash never disappeared. You hear these old stories where people you know, used to fold bills and pad the draw and stuff like that. Maybe that happened in some places. The cash part used to be, and everybody that knows in the industry, it's the same 20 that we all passed around town. Right. So right when you go in and you ordered one drink and you just put the 20 out there, or now it's like a 50, that 50 then goes into the tip bucket and yeah, you don't pay for your next couple of rounds. That's the type of theft that I worry about. Yeah, for sure. And that's hard to track, even with cameras. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> you see the money coming in. Right. And it's funny now because it's easier to do it now with sliding the cash because the bartenders are always so busy. They're like secretaries now. Right. Because they're doing so much paperwork and receipts and signing and tips and closing tabs. And now 
these kids got smart for a little bit, they would run a tab on their debit card. They'd come in with whatever local bank and they had their debit card. Here's my card. They'd run up a tab, 100, 200 bucks, and they would leave. Who cares? You have a debit card of some name, which is garbage. They just go to their bank the next morning. Hey, I lost my debit card. They print it right there and you're back out on the street and they put money in their account. So now we take the license, but you have all this information behind the bar, licenses, yeah. credit cards, passports. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. The joy of running a bit. Like, it's not all fun. There's paperwork and you got to do taxes. <laughs> no, the taxes, you have to pay your sales tax. You get- That's my advice. If you get into any business, just pay your freaking sales tax. Pay the- you can screw everybody else. But the people who collect the tax is the strongest and most powerful mafia in the entire planet. Yeah. Pay them their money. And that does not matter what state you're in. No. I've had clients go, but I just needed to borrow it. It's not your money. Do not touch yeah. the sales tax money. <laughs> yeah. It is you, not you yours. You don't charge tax. You only collect it. You're just holding it for safekeeping. <laughs> yeah. Now, your bar is known for being really all-inclusive. A lot of celebrities show up there. Like, people show up. But what was the driving force behind the ethos of all-inclusive? Like, what really drove that? So, listen, it's an LGBTQ plus establishment. I mean, it's all-inclusive. And then, yes, so from a theory, everybody's welcome, everybody's included. From running the business, you having that type of genre is great because you have so many different subgroups within this large group. And from a business standpoint, you use it as a benefit for programming. So I don't have the same cookie cutter thing every night where eh, if I don't go to the Ritz on Monday, I'll go on Saturday or I'll go on Wednesday. Happy hour is this and this and that. No way. You give a little something to everyone. So this way, if you came in on Monday then you came back on Thursday, it would be a totally different experience. On Monday nights, we have a more of a Brazilian feel. On Tuesday nights, we do one of our most successful parties called Papito. It's a party that's mostly geared to gay Latin, but like island Latin style crowd, not really South American, or but more of like that. And then Wednesday is college night. So it's gay, straight, all college kids. And we do that because of the type of DJ we have there, the type of drag queens and shows, and obviously inexpensive drinks. I never use the word cheap. (laughs) (laughs) And then Thursday night, we do a party called Do the Right Thing that I started probably 12 years ago with Peppermint, who's on Broadway, who's the first transgender individual that's on Broadway, and Caswell who's a big DJ and nightlife personality, is now out in LA. We started it. It was a throwback hip-hop party for gay African-American men. Then when Caswell went to LA, we put in a different DJ. Then when Pep got on RuPaul's and went to Broadway, we put in Morgan Royale. And now we still have Morgan. And our DJ is Kate Stiles, who's a straight blonde woman. The two of them just worked. We have that. And on the weekends, we do a combination because we have two floors. We'll do pop on one floor, maybe hip hop on one. And then the next night we'll do Latin on one floor and pop on the other. We always are changing. 
it's the most important thing. Well, that's fun. You got to keep it fresh. And look, everybody likes to party at some point. So if you welcome everybody, like, why not? The more, the merrier, right? The biggest net catches the most fish. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Why wouldn't, I mean, I don't know any business that wouldn't want to be all inclusive. Like in the scheme of things, just from a business standpoint, cast a wider net. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, I'm a very extremely open person. I don't have anything. I get along with people. I don't care this, that. I get along with people. If you're a good person and we connect and we have the right energy, then everything's good. It's frustrating to see a lot of things that are going on in the world. And I think why the Ritz works is I just apply my personal feelings to how I operate in life, to my business. And here we are 17 years later. Yeah, I love that. How did COVID impact all that? Because a lot of stuff got shut down. It was tough. Okay, so I told you the Ritz never shut down. (laughs) (laughs) You did say that. (laughs) Yeah. So when COVID hit and you were mandated, everything was closed. Then New York City started to allow you to do to-go beverages. So I literally put the bar by the front door and people came up from the street and got to-go beverages. And then they started every week, oh, but you have to have food. So we gave you a drink and chips. Oh, you have to have substantial food, not chips. So it was a drink and a hot dog. Okay, now you can have people come in just to get it, but they have to leave. (laughs) We were doing that every day. We never stopped. And then they said, okay, you could put tables and chairs out on the street. So- I literally created the Ritz from two o'clock in the afternoon until we had to close. I think it was nine o'clock or something like that, eight or nine. I put it outside. I put drag queens outside. I put go-go boys outside. (laughs) I had waiters running. I had drink machines going. Anything that I could do, not only to keep us in business, but I have people that have been with me since the day I opened. They had to pay their rent. They had to eat. What I mean, I did whatever I did to make sure they had work. And then we opened back up. But if you remember, in December, the city shut indoor dining down again. Yeah. What do you do? So we had heaters outside, extension cords, even with it snowing. The one drag queen says to me, she goes, it's snowing. I said, that's great. And she goes, what do you mean that's great? I said, it gives you a theme for tonight. She goes, what? I said, you're a snow bunny. Go outside and make some fucking money. <laughs> and I got to tell you, she did great. And we just had to keep pivoting and pivoting and pivoting. And the landscape just kept moving. And the city, I mean, listen, do I blame New York? And do I blame this? And oh, the guy in Florida was so right. I don't blame it. We didn't know anything. We didn't know. And you want to say conspiracy theory, all the people at the top, they knew what was going on. Great. The people at the top. But all the local officials and the council people and the mayor people didn't know anything. Yeah. And we got through it. Yeah. Didn't say at the end of it. Unfortunately, there's people that didn't get through it. And I feel for them. It was tough. I mean, I had a lot of years of experience. And as I said before, I had to re-laser focus during that time because that wasn't a moment where you could sit back and, oh, the manager says everything's good. I had to be there. We had to do this. And we had to make sure everybody had a mask on and the, and everything was labeled. You had to be hypervigilant. Yeah, it was crazy times. It was crazy times. And we didn't yeah. know. And not a lot of people knew. And I'm not even... Nobody knew. And anybody that says they did is... That's just my personal opinion. I think they're full of it. Yeah, I hear you. I agree. 
Well, Tommy, we are at the M&M moment of the show. We're at the sweet spot of money and motivation. I'm wondering if you have a practical financial tip or a piece of wealth wisdom you could share with our listeners. So it's something funny that everybody always says, a rainy day fund. It's a funny thing, but it's so freaking important yep. that you have, and I don't call it a rainy day fund. I call it an oh shit fund. <laughs> yeah. And things happen and they happen at the worst times. And AC units break, coolers break, things break, and they don't break when you're in your busy season. They break on a weekend in the middle of August when you're at your low point. And you've got to find what your number is, if it's 50 grand, 100 grand or something like that. But I always, you know, the best way to do is keep it in cash, keep it in a box somewhere in a wall. I'm not going to say (laughs) on the third floor behind the book series. (laughs) But just make sure you have that because having that just little, 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 little get out of jail free card in the back of your mind means the world a difference because when something does break and the situation is tense, you'll have that little bit of, okay, I'm okay. I got it. Here it is. Get it fixed. Let's move. And then as soon as you can replace that, replace it. But always have that backup funds. Yeah. I think that's so important, especially in this day and age where everything's electronic. If the bank system shuts down (laughs) and you can't get money out of your ATM or your Venmo, not going to be good. So I love that. Cash gets everything not only done, but especially in New York, when you call the HVAC guy or this person and say, hey, I'm going to pay you in green, they'll be there in 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Before I forget, are you having a big celebration for the 17th anniversary? Are you? Yes, we are doing it on Wednesday, September I don't call me the date, it's the 27th or 28th, something like that. All right. Whatever that last Wednesday is. But we're going to have a big party. I have my guy, Steve Sidewalk, who's a famous old school DJ. He's been DJing me since the day I opened. We used to DJ at Heaven and Rush and Splash back in the day. He's going to be there. We're going to invite everybody that used to work for us to come, all the people in the nightlife industry to come, and we'll do a lot of giveaways. It's going to be a really nice time. Uh, That sounds fun. That sounds fun. Well, Tommy, listen, this has been such a fun conversation, but for me, the biggest takeaway, when you talked about a normal day and you said, I just take what comes my way. Yeah. I mean, that sort of sounds like a philosophy of life. We sort of just have to take what comes our way and then are we able to pivot when we need to pivot? And being able to know when you need to be laser focused and when you can actually say, oh, I'm going to go sleep in Miami for three days. <laughs> but to have that awareness of, yeah, things are going to come at me. I don't know what the day is going to look like. I think most of us don't know what our day is going to look like. We have an idea, but then can we pivot? Can we rise to the occasion? Can we get creative like you're talking about with COVID and putting stuff outside and not like what I'm not hearing is, oh my God, all these things happened to me. And then I had to live in a cardboard box. No, here's what's going on. And here's how I'm showing up today. And I think the fact that you're just like, everybody's welcome. Yeah. If you're a nice person, if you've got some kindness in your heart, you've got some empathy, compassion, come along. Let's. And you have cash. And you have cash. (laughs) (laughs) Have some cash. Or a clean credit card. We'll take (laughs) both. Or a clean credit card. No debit cards. Yeah. I mean, I just think that that's really the way we go through life is being able to say, how am I going to pivot? 
And can I stay focused on the things that are important so that I can have an outcome where I've said, hey, I think this is paid off and the air is pretty good up here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where can people find you online, social media and all that good stuff? So personally, I'm T-Grex, T-G-R-E-X-S on Instagram. And then I'm Tommy Greco on Facebook. So it's funny. There's different things. On Instagram, it's the Ritz Bar New York City or the Ritz Bar NYC. You'll find us. We have so many followers. After this many years, it's hard not to follow us <laughs> or find us more or less. You yeah. will be found. You will be found. Well, we will. You will. You will. <laughs> well, Tommy, thanks again so much. I appreciate you sharing your stories and your wisdom. And yeah, thanks so much. And congratulations again on 17 years. Bob, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Hey there, Money Master. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn some valuable insights around your relationship with money? Our guests shared some of their financial epiphanies. You might have experienced one too. Don't just sit there with that aha moment. Share it with us and the world by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Or leave a comment on one of our socials, at Money You Should Ask. Let's spread the word and help others explore their financial health too. But that's not all. Do you want to live in abundance and build wealth that can sustain you and your family for generations to come? It only takes one thing. The willingness to change the way you think about your money. It's time to test your money nerve and discover what's been holding you back from financial freedom. Take the free quiz now at themoneynerve.com and begin your journey towards a prosperous future.